Hansel and Gretel, I love the piece. I've seen it many times over many, many years. And I was also privileged to be able to sit in on rehearsal yesterday. And want to, in a moment, I'll introduce you to the, the panel. But before we really get into it, uh, let me just describe how I think we're going to sort of play the next hour and a half of our lives. We're going to start in a moment with our two singers singing the most famous piece from it, the Arbor, the Evening Hymn, which many of you will know, and which the music of which recurs throughout this beautiful piece, um, with Mark uh, kindly accompanying them. I'll then spend a few minutes telling you a little bit about the opera, the composer, the period in which it was written, why, when, how, the legacy, the Grimm brothers on whom it's all based, and so on. After which, I'm going to ask each of the members of the panel various questions about their particular, what they're doing in the course of it. And I've said to all of them just now, if you want to butt in and ask a further question, you're more than welcome. And then in about an hour from now, and possibly a little bit less, I think it'd be nice to open it to questions from you, the audience. But let me start just by introducing um, Heather and Lizzie and Mark, <laughs> who's nearest to the piano. Thank you very much. Lizzie Elizabeth Karani, Heather Lowe, Ben the conductor. You've got details about them all, so I won't give you their entire bio. <laughs> ben Glassberg is conducting it. Uh, and uh, Tim, Timothy Shida, who's in charge of not only this production, many other productions that he's done, but also of the theater in Regent's Park mm -hmm. more generally. So a very busy fellow, and it's lovely to have you directing this particular um, production. And Mark there, um, chorus master on the staff of ENO and so on. And yes, indeed, it's lovely having the Regent's Park Theater and ENO working together on uh, this production. Just a few words, therefore, about the opera. Many of you will, will probably know it. You'll almost certainly know that beautiful duet and that particular music which recurs uh, during, later on during the opera. It's based on a story from the Grimm brothers, who originally put together a great many folk tales, uh, still during the Napoleonic Wars, with back in sort of 1812. Think German cultural history in the 19th century. The idea of culture not just being high, posh art, but the work of the folk, of the people. Think of Germany being not a national unity, but a whole series of different duchies and princedoms and kingdoms and so on, all rivaling each other and not really knowing each other. And yet the aspiration after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, of maybe one day we can all become kind of culturally united with a long tradition that goes back to the beautiful houses of Nuremberg and the forest lands of Germany and the traditions of it and, and um, you know, great leaders of the past lying asleep dead beneath the forests who will one day rise again and save us. Um, the Grimm brothers were not the only people who were writing stories of that kind. Um, Struvel Peter, you know, no, lots of stories about naughty children naughty little children, they get up to all sorts of things, you can't be sure what they're going to do, you know, sit straight at table, if you sit back you might fall over and you'll deserve it, all that kind of thing. Um, and Hansel and Gretel are two kind of naughty children, we'll talk about that in a moment. Many, many stories uh, about um, a nasty parent, particularly a nasty mother, particularly a nasty step. Think of so many, I mean, think of Red Riding Hood, think of Cinderella, think of any number of these things that later on turn into operas, ballets, Disney films, etc., etc., but have these themes in common. And I suppose there are three things in common um, to all these things which are very evident in Hansel and Gretel. One is German forests and the importance of the forest. I mean, think of... Think, I mean, think almost everything I've said makes you think of Wagner. Think of Valkyrie, where they're it begins with he's been rushing across the forest. There's a great big special um, tree with a sword in it in Valkyrie, and so on. 
think, uh, think of De Freischutz, which many of you know about, you know, huntsmen after a war who live in the middle of the forest and get drunk because they're so happy the war is now over, but is it really all that? So think forests, think children, lost children, babes in the wood, lost kids, who, who knows what they're going to get up to. Kiddie stories, which shows that children are in danger and who knows what might happen to them, but it kind of all ends all right in the end. I remember as a child, you know, Peter Pan or something, nasty dreams, you'd never quite know. Ah, oh, but it's all all right at the very end because we're alive and well and happy and mummy and daddy have come to get us. Another of the kind of themes that runs through a lot of that folk art in 19th century German and French and English uh, popular culture. And the third one, which I've mentioned, and it sounds terribly brutal, silly, and sexist looking back now, is the evil, the witch, the nasty old woman who, uh, usually a stepmother, it's not her child, and therefore she resents it being prettier than she is, or luckier, or whatever, and wants to put it to sleep for a hundred years by pricking itself on a spindle, or whatever. Many, many of those, uh, you know, as I even mentioned these three categories, you can think of any number of other examples that embody some of these things. Engelbert Humperdinck, who's the composer of this, is at the end of the century. He's, um, he, I mean, this, this opera is, is, is written very much in the, in the shadow of Wagner. He gets to know Wagner. He's much younger than Wagner. Uh, he's a more or less exact contemporary of Puccini, sort of 1850s, 60s, and lives you know, till the early 1920s, that kind of period. And this opera opens um, when he's in, in, I think, 92, I can't remember exactly. And he is very much influenced by Wagner. One of the things we'll talk about later, perhaps with Ben, is the use of a kind of themes that recur in the orchestration and indeed in, in, in the singing, in a Wagnerian way. Um, Wagner employs young Humperdinck to be one of his assistants when Wagner is writing what turns out to be his final opera, Parsifal. You know, could you copy out these pages for me, Engel, Engi, <laughs> by, you know, by Tuesday? And by the way, I need a little linking passage between there and there when this character comes on. You, you can write that for me. Was that all right with you? And he's awestruck by the, by the master the, of, of, of Bayreuth. And uh, later on, after Wagner's death, he um, uh, becomes tutor to Wagner's son, Siegfried Wagner, for example, and teaches him music for a bit. And is very much in that post-Wagnerian, romantic, think Mahler, think maybe Bruckner, think uh, Richard Strauss. Young Richard Strauss, who's 10 years younger than Humperdinck, in fact, is the man who conducts the first performance of it and thinks it's a wonderful work. Richard Strauss, I think, is late 20s, and by that time, Humperdinck is probably late 30s or thereabouts. And it's a huge success. And it comes to Covent Garden, it goes to New York, it goes all over Europe, and so on. He never writes anything as famous or popular as this. He lives on a while, he teaches. Um, he writes another opera later on, Königskinder, um, uh, royal children, and that gets put on at the Met in New York in 1910, and he's there. And whom should he meet but Puccini, whose Girl of the Golden West has been put on you know, a week or two, or about the same time. They become quite friendly. And the Humperdinck opera is far more popular with both the audience and the press than Puccini's Girl of the Golden West. What does an, what's an Italian know about the gold rush, you know? But they become very friendly, and Puccini says, well, you know, good luck, mate, nice meeting you, and I hope you have further successes in the years to come. The story of this opera, which I won't labor, many of you will know, is in three acts. And we begin in this absolutely impoverished hut in the middle of the forest, and the kids are scrabbling around and desperate for something to eat. And who should march in but the horrible mother? In some productions, the horrible mother and the witch are played by the same, but as we'll hear later on, there's a, or we may not hear today, there's a surprise in the witch situation. Which situation? Um, and the mother comes in and is all grumpy and everybody's hungry. And the, 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 the one pot of milk, I guess you have, you, gets broken by accident and everybody's crossed. And she sends the kids out, go, go away, go, go into the woods, go and pick some strawberries or something. Then the drunken dad comes in, all 
very jolly but out of his mind with, um, and, and um, won't tell you the story in any kind of detail, but the next thing we know is that there's an orchestral transition with witches, perhaps, flying overhead. Think Valkyries, think journeys down the Rhine, since I've mentioned Wagner. And we're in the woods with the kids who are lost and are hungry, but they manage to find this and they manage to find that, and nice things happen and strange things happen, and eventually they are absolutely knackered and they don't know where they are, and they lie under a tree. Trees m might be places that will protect you. And they might be places that endanger you, and they might look like witches at dusk or night. In this particular case, they fall to sleep, and you've just heard them falling to sleep, dreaming of all the lovely angels that are looking after you. And when they finally wake up, um, there's a dew fairy who says, you know, there's now dew on the lawn, and it's time to sort of wake up. And then sooner they eventually see the house in the middle of the woods with form made of gingerbread and they pick bits and pieces and then there's a nasty witch who tries to fatten them up so she can eat them. However, it all ends happily and the witch is the one who gets burned and all the gingerbread kiddies who've been killed, eaten, whatever, earlier on all live happily ever after, as you would expect, with, among other things, the tune you've just heard. So, quick summary, therefore, of the origins of it, the themes within it, the world that Humperdinck picked up and embodied alongside people like Richard Strauss and so on. And um, enough from me. I think it's probably time. I don't know whether I've done, done it justice, if I've done it justice. First of all, let me introduce you to Hansel and Gretel, or Gretel and Hansel. Um, <clears throat> what are the two roles like, and, and how different are they? I mean, you're singing duets. One of you is a mezzo, one of you is a soprano. Um, What's it like to sing? What it's like to learn? And what's it like? I noticed in the rehearsal that you're having, because you're young kids, you're, you're 10-year-olds or whatever it is, little boy and little girl, you're leaping around like mad all the time. <laughs> and, um, I mean, you must be absolutely A, knackered, and B, out of breath. And yet you have to sing all the time. Tell, <laughs> tell us how you do it. Heather, tell us. Kick us off. Really. It's, it's, I mean, it's a very physical role because we're children and children never sit still <laughs> and so um i think we've both decided well we've all decided that obviously they're they not can't be much older than 10 um and we had a discussion as to whether they were the same age younger older and kind of came to the conclusion that gretel is the eldest and hansel's a little bit younger and it, it's very physical isn't it it's it, we are just running around all the time, which is fine. It's just working out when to take a breather <laughs> and when to keep going. Every now and then you're asleep and she's trying to kick you awake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Lizzie. a lazy one. <laughs> to be honest, when I um, was cast in the role last year, I thought, I need to start doing Couch to 5K, <laughs> which I did. Um, yeah, they're, they're really interesting roles because you would expect, you know, uh, music for 10-year-olds to be quite twee. And, of course, at points it is. Um, they have all the nursery rhymes, but it is effectively baby Wagner. So they're, they're big mm. sings, both at, the, yeah. both at the roles. Um, yeah, they're both quite high within um, mm. our respective uh, fachs. Um, yeah. Gretel is very high <laughs> um, <laughs> at points. And yes, we do have to run about, but uh, you can't really get away from that. They are 10 mm. years old, and yeah, as you say, 10-year-olds don't sit still. Mm. And dr dramatically, um, I mean, the whole opera starts with a, a few words from, from Gretel, and then quite a lot of the first act or two, you're taking the initiative over this sort of naughty boy who's not quite sure what he's doing. Mm. But then the naughty boy in the final act uh, takes rather more of the initiatives. Yeah. It's interesting, Is that, is that a fair yeah. summary? Yeah, we, we actually discussed it the other week. It's quite interesting that Gretel seems to always be in charge when they're in the house, um, when there's actually nothing, nothing to be afraid of. But as soon as they get into the woods, she's... <laughs> She's completely useless, basically, for the rest of the opera. She doesn't make any decisions for herself. And Hansel really takes charge and tells her what to do for, yeah, the rest of it. 
Really? We did um, um, kind of uh, just a work through the text and um, we were like, right, okay, choose two points and just walk between that scale as to kind of where you are. <laughs> what did you say for the third act? You go, Gretel was going between absolute panic and <laughs> a panic attack and just listening to Hansel and just doing what he said. Yeah, she, she's kind of in that position from mm. the middle of act two. Mm. As, as, I, as I recall it, and I haven't obviously seen this production, but I mean, you, you get locked up. She saves you from being locked up, and you're, and you're the one who pushes the witch into the oven. Am I, I think is that it, accurate? The text-wise, it's funny because Gretel hardly says anything in the third act at mm. all. Mm. Um, and it's always Hansel saying, calm down, you know, be on your guard, let's just do exactly what she says um, and we'll be able to figure it out. And in this one, it's more Hansel definitely working it out and making the decision that he's heard everything that, that the witch has said throughout the time that he's meant to be, in inverted commas, sleeping. And I think if you're in that position where someone's locked you up, you would not sleep at all. Um, and so he's heard what, what she's going to do. So he knows that that is what's going to happen. So I think he's very clever in going, right, okay. I mean, Gretel gets a magic wand and she breaks the, the enchantment of keeping them locked up. But I think Hansel actually takes the initiative to say, mm. we're going to put her in the oven now. Yeah, she's pretty much a puppet in one, mm. once we get into the witch's, uh, witch's scene. Yeah, he makes all the decisions and she just does what he says. Mm. And who knows who pushes the witch in the oven? Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to see. Let me move to Tim. I mean, it, it's taking place, the production's taking place in a park. There's lots of forest land and greenery all around. Um, give us a little bit of an idea of the production, which is obviously being prepared. I saw it rehearsed here, but uh, a bit of it. But it's being prepared for performance in Regent's Park, in the Regent's Park Theatre. Yeah, um, the, I think the first uh, decisions um, when you're creating the opera is, for me, was how to do it in that space. I mean, I often think... Uh, there are three questions to answer. First of all, when are you, when are you putting on a, a production? Who is it for and where is it? And those three things seem to come for me before what do I want to say? Because that, there's, a, there's a, a slight level of vanity in that, but those three questions for the production to be relevant and successful need to be answered um, uh, correctly. Um, Hans and Gretel posed... Uh, uh, quite a few issues for Regent's Park because we don't have f flying and we don't have a substage and we don't have um, mecha mecha mechanics that are going to bring things on from right and left because right and left are so far away into the trees. Um, so there were very, very strong practical decisions about how to stage a three-act opera in three three slash four completely different locations without those other um, stage um, uh, uh, tricks to, to help you. So how are you doing it? <laughs> um, so we, it, 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 the, so the two starting points were quite literally how do we get from inside a house, so the first act, um, as Daniel says, is entirely in this tiny little house, how do we get from within that to the second act, which is in the forest, and how do we get from the third act, which is outside of the witch's house, to the, to the second part of the third act, which is inside the witch's house. Um, and that very quickly became a revolve, um, which was the first decision that we would have a revolve, which would have the, you would be able to see both the inside and the outside of both of those houses. And so we worked um, outwards from that decision pretty early on. Um, uh, then also how to get from that house physically from um, into the forest, we, could dis we, we have to make that house disappear. So the revolve was great for getting from inside, outside to inside of the witch's house, but how would we make the, um, the family home disappear? Um, and then we have that six minute piece of music mm -hmm. um, called the witch's ride that goes between acts one and two, which in many productions is the curtain, and certainly in the original production would have been the curtain coming in whilst that scenic change happens. We don't have a curtain at Regent's Park, so there was never, <laughs> never the possibility that I would um, not have to stage the witch's ride. So the witch's ride is completely staged, which 
again, thinking practically, I had to change the set. So I figured out how to do that, and then I went back to figure out who those people might be that we're using and what their narrative might be. But I have to be honest, I did start practically, that that has to disappear and this has to appear. This is how we're going to do it. And then I thought creatively about who those people were and, and um, what their intention is. And it gives some idea also of, um, I mean, is it set in, in any particular period, or is it contemporary kids? Um, it is set. I, 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 it, it's not very specific. I can tell you what it isn't. I didn't want it to be um, 19th century. I didn't want it to be kind of Heidi in the woods, or on the Heidi on a mountainside, or Hansel and Gretel in the woods. I didn't want to be let off the hook by placing it so far into the past that it became mere fairy tale. But I didn't want to set it now because I think that takes the magic out of it and the, the fact that fairy tales are for children, they are meant to be from a, from a distant land that, we, that those children can kind of observe with safety things happening to other people in a world that they're not too familiar with and that subliminally... Um, they would learn from that. I mean, we're familiar with that. Arthur Miller chose to talk to us about the um, McCarthyism through the witch trials of Salem, Massachusetts in, the, in, the, in 1692. So we're familiar with that trick. Um, so I didn't want it to be completely modern. So um, I started to uh, also think about the... So I wanted to set it in a otherness. Um, and then I started to think about the kind of magical realism of something like um, Stranger Things, which everybody's watching on Netflix or a lot of the younger generations are watching, about how it's seemingly real that we can... Or any kind of sci-fi... Uh, what's the one I watch with the... Um, the Walking Dead. Um, so the world is seemingly real, but the strange, odd apocalyptic slash magical slash enchanting things happen. So we can invest... In a, in a, the, so the reality is not too far from us, but it, but it also allows these magical things ha to happen. So it's ended up being kind of, of the world of Stranger Things, which might be 70s or 80s Americana. Um, why is it Americana? If the designer was here, he'd answer it better than I. I can't quite remember. Um, <laughs> as in, uh, uh, and, and the, and the, as, uh, it, it's pleasing on the eye. Uh, again, some, sometimes these things are just about the aesthetics. Um, he uh, is, it's Peter McIntosh, the designer, and quite frankly, that's his period. He works, but we've done a lot of musical comedy from the golden age together. You may be familiar with him. He did the Fiona Shaw, Figueroa, Eno, and the um, Philadeloid, um, Margaret Atwood, I've forgotten the name of the book. Handmaid's Thank you, The Handmaid's Tale. A, a, a number of years ago. He and I have done three or four mid-century musical comedies together and he's very familiar and uh, he um, uh, uh, excels at that period. So he was, he was interested in, in the Americana. I, I had no strong feeling about that. It wasn't important to me. Um, so yeah, it's kind of 70s, 80s American. And tell me also about the um, gingerbread children who are pl plastered around the, the central house, do they suddenly appear? Does the house yeah, suddenly he, appear? He, uh, Peter very, very early on decided that he wanted the, um, the gingerbread children to be very present throughout. So we have this kind of cemetery of gingerbread children. The lyric is, and look, there's a gingerbread men in a pen, is that right? And they're in a pen are gingerbread men. And they're in a pen are gingerbread men. So, uh, which, I, which I'd always thought was maybe that the pen was that they, was, they were a fence. They were, they were, they were kind of the, 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 the white picket fence around, the ha around this little um, gingerbread house. But the way they're placed is to, is to make them look as if they're um, a cemetery. Slash a kind of store cupboard of children that she's... Um, keeping for later, that she's turned into gingerbread and she hasn't eaten them yet, so they're placed in the garden. Um, if we were doing it at the Colosseum with the amazing stage wizardry that that theatre has, then 
at that moment when the children come alive again, they would be descending in a lift <laughs> into, in, in, uh, to, into, the, into the ground and the children might be coming up on an elevator. But we don't have those um, tricks at Regent's Park. Um, so I was going to ask whether it's likely to be transferable. <laughs> no, we can't be really, can it? No. So yeah. it's just about the children appearing from the woods, which, having directed many things there, there is something about, I mean, we all know the story, but for those that don't, or the opera, to have 20 plus children coming out of the trees at that point in the evening is in itself very arresting. Mm. Mm. The one real chorus, and Mark will know about this, is really the children at the end emerging from death back to life, I guess. Does that be a way of, fair way of describing it? Absolutely, I think uh, probably envisaged by Humperdinck as uh, being an angelic, all boys uh, German choir in that fine tradition that they have. So he probably had that in mind. I think we're offering something slightly different, but I think also very interesting. Um, uh, we are mixing uh, some children from uh, Pimlico Music Foundation uh, with some children who are used to being in the West End. And uh, I think there's something very exciting about having that, that children's energy on the stage when, of real children when we've had We've had Hansel and Gretel, who are doing a wonderful children's energy throughout the piece. Do we not look like um, ten-year-olds? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the, the music. I mean, Ben, I was going on and on about Wagner and um, Valkyries riding and Siegfried going down the Rhine. And, so on. and there are indeed musical journeys, the heck, the, the, the witches ride, and angels when they're and all that. Um, and he was very much influenced by Wagner, very much that post-Wagnerian romantic style. Um, how does this reflect in, in the score? Give me some examples. Sing, sing the occasional light motif. You would like me to sing the occasional light <laughs> motif? <laughs> That's definitely not going to happen. Um, well, it's funny, I remember when I was at secondary school and I was taking organ lessons for some bizarre reason, and um, my organ teacher said that uh, I'd never heard Hanson Gretel before, and he said it's basically Wagner for kids. And I thought that sounded a bit sort of bizarre and, and, and probably wouldn't be true. And actually, it, it sort of is. I mean, there's, there's so many elements of the music that are clearly influenced by Wagner, but at the same time, it's incredibly accessible in a way that, you know, the ring cycle might not be for young people. Um, I suppose, as you say, the, the key things are this idea of, well, in Wagner, it's leitmotif. So I, I don't think it, it translates literally as a leitmotif in, in Hansel and Gretel. But there are certainly musical ideas that are related to characters uh, or themes that then recur. So for example, uh, in the first act, when the mother and father, when the, the mother reveals to the father that the, that the children are off in the woods, he, um, he picks up this broomstick and starts uh, reminiscing about what a broom, broomstick means for, for the witch. And we hear this first motif, the, the broomstick motif, at that moment, which then becomes the basis for the whole witch's ride, which takes us from the first to the second act, and then comes back at the very end. But having heard it in a minor key, it then comes back in a major key with all the gingerbread children when the witch is dead. So this idea of the music of the broomstick of the witch comes back at different points in the opera in different guises. That's super Wagnerian, of course. Um, what I find really interesting about it is that the opera is quite short um, for someone who is clearly in, uh, you know, influenced by Wagner. That's, that's a big change. It's, <laughs> it's, All operas are short by anybody. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's two hours of music as opposed to, to four or five. Um, but yet there's so much of it where there's no singing whatsoever. So we have um, a fairly lengthy overture for a piece of this, uh, this length. The witches ride between act one and two. When the two children go to sleep, we have this six or seven minute pantomime of the most extraordinary music, but quite a lot of it. Uh, and then huge interludes in the third act between the various bits of action. So for an opera of such a short length to have all these musical journeys is, I suppose, very much showing his, the influence of Wagner there, but it's incredibly pictorial. So I think it's, it's terrific that we're having to stage them because it's okay, sometimes it's very nice to bring the curtain down and just focus on the music for a change. But I, I know my, my wife is not an opera lover, but she's becoming one. And the first few times we went to an opera where that happens and the curtain comes down and she was sort of turned to me and say, well, what, why? You know, what, what's going on? What am I meant to get narratively from this? And um, that's, very, that's very important in a theatre, you know, that we're presenting this opera in collaboration with English National Opera, but in a, in a playhouse, in a, mm. in a theatre that, that many of that audience are not, are not used to opera. So I, I see it as, a, as an, an, maybe an introduction for some people to an art form, not, not necessarily their first opera, but, you know, they're not, the, it's not you guys. Um, and, and I speak 
<laughs> and I speak as, you know, I, this is only my third opera, the third opera I've directed. Turn of the Screw was the first. Um, visual cues help understand and assimilate the music. Mm. They really do. And, and so I, it's very important to me that all those interludes are staged, not least also because Ben and the orchestra are behind the stage. So you wouldn't even have them to look at if we didn't stage it. No, and nobody wants to look at the bald patch on the back of my head for seven minutes anyway. Um, and I suppose one, another thing that's really nice, talking about this, this motif idea, um, that the overture is a sort of best bits um, in a sort of the, the, the way that we almost have with musical theatre more, actually, than in opera, that, that it's the best tunes from the piece, um, obviously arranged in, a, in a, an, a beautiful structure with this opening slow... Um, the music from the evening prayer that we hear later on, and then it goes into um, some music from the gingerbread chorus, some music for when from the, when they're stuck in the woods, and it's the as an audience you don't know what you're listening to because you've, you're 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 hearing these these melodies for the first time, but there's something about their clarity and simplicity that they they will stay up in the, in your head, and those moments where they recur later, it's that that sort of I, that recognition. Um, is something that's really wonderful and I think great about this opera that um, the recycling of, of melodic information helps us to connect the story in our minds. Well, Wagner does that overture to Flying Dutchman or Meistersinger play a series of tunes, all of which you will hear in more detail later on in the evening. Yeah, well, Meistersinger is the clearest one where we have this. It's, it's the, the three key themes that come back um, throughout the whole opera. Um, and it, what's amazing about, you know, with Wagner, that five hours later you still remember those tunes. We haven't got so long to wait. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's the, 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 the subtle subtle changes like there'll be one harmonic difference when we hear it later and it'll totally change the way we interpret it it might make it seem much more sinister than when we hear it in the evening prayer and it's it's beautiful and innocent but one uh, diminished chord in, in place of a major chord suddenly changes the whole thing for us dramatically mm -hmm. as ben says there are a number of quite long orchestral sections so tim how do you stay you're not shutting a curtain you're staging them in each case aren't you yeah, so we started with the witch's ride, I guess, because um, that had a practical, uh, needed a practical solution, which, as I've said, was to get from the house to outside of the house. And it leads from Act 1 to Act 2. Act 1 to Act 2, yes, into the forest. And then we worked backwards from there. Um, uh, and we came, uh, the, um, the text refers to grizzle witches. Um, so, and, and then talks about there being one particular witch, one, the, the witch that we're going to meet, the gingerbread witch. So I started to think about if on some level this is a, a you know, there's, there's some level of paedophilia in this story, isn't there? And, um, uh, and malevolence in the woods, that maybe the woods was full of malevolent people, that we lived on the edge of the wood and within this wood there were other malevolent people, that there was a whole host of people that might encourage these two children onto a pathway that they shouldn't take. Again, that we're really familiar with in, in um, uh, uh, fairy, fairy stories, the wolf, for example, in, in uh, Little Red Riding Hood. So, uh, and the other given that I had were the 14 angels. There have to be 14 angels in the pantomime because that's what the lyrics are. Two stand here, two stand there, two stand at their feet, two stand at their head that they tell us in the, uh, in, in, in the evening prayer. So I thought, well, I've got these 14 people. Uh, they'll be doing this job then. <laughs> um, so I created, so we, so we decided to make these 14 people who live in the wood that... Um, come to potentially take Hans and Gretel on, 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 onto the wrong path. So they're kind of witches of sorts, but they are dressed as woods people. Um, so they, and then, so practically speaking, because I was using them in the witch's ride, I thought, well, I, uh, it could feel peculiar to just suddenly see them in that place, so we'll introduce them in the overture. So they get introduced in the overture, and there's other things in the overture. I, I find it interesting that Hans and Gretel are not the only children, that this is a serial killer we're dealing with. Um, so, you know, there's this gingerbread uh, graveyard, so I decided that we would see uh, some other children running off into the forest in the overture. So we've staged three sets of little alternative Hansel and Gretels, Peter and Janes and 
Paul and whoever, um, and they 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 run off into the forest. They get thrown into the forest by their mother too, and get lost. And we so we stage that uh, in in pantomime. They get lost, and they see, and they look up and smile, and we're to you're to assume that's the gingerbread house that they've seen, <laughs> and then we and then we revolve into their house. Um, so I guess all of that leads up to this staged pantomime, which in the libretto is staged. So you, you after the evening prayer when they go to sleep. Um, they're very specific about this, very, very specific, aren't they, in the libretto about how that's staged. We're not doing the staging in the libretto, but um, that felt like that gave us license to stage the, the other interludes. And there are, of course, other characters. Um, before you go to sleep, you know how every time, you, if you're like me, you wake up in the morning and you realise you've got all sorts of little bits of sand in the corner of your eyes. So you get put to sleep by a sand man mm -hmm. and you get woken up by a rather lovely dew fairy. <laughs> what, what, who, are, who are they and what do they do and what do you do when they're A, putting you to sleep and B, waking you up? Uh, well, they're played by um, Gillian Keith and Hawu, um, both sopranos, but obviously the sand man is a man. Um, and we had quite a lot of discussion about the Sandman, actually, about whether he was... Because initially, we were both quite scared mm -hmm. of the Sandman, but I think we decided that it was someone that we would be familiar with, whether we'd seen him before or not. We, you know, we would have um, heard about him before. Um, so, yeah, we had quite a lot of um, discussion about whether he was scary, and then we decided he, he wasn't, wasn't, and we got tired. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think... I, I think there's a real instinct to, uh, with me included, to think that the Sandman is a malevolent force mm. because it's a, it's a, it's, she describes, what's that old man doing in the wood at this time of night? Mm. And he's coming towards us. I mean, we, um, you know, and in, in the operatic version, it's a woman dressed as an old man singing, singing soprano, so it's weird. Um, and, they've, and the preceding bars have been about what's that in the swamp? What's that light on the silver birch? So it's natural to assume that they're seeing something phantom-like. Mm. But actually, the, both the Sandman, which is not really familiar to us, I don't think, certainly isn't, wasn't, isn't familiar to my childhood, the idea of a Sandman. I think it's more European than, than um, British. Um, we Willy Winky, I think, where I'm equating it to. Um, uh, but I, I read somewhere about, I mean, in all honesty, the opera, the plot stops halfway through act two. They say, when they say, what's that? And it's the Sandman. You think if you don't know the opera, you'd assume that's going to be the gingerbread house appearing. But it isn't. It's a, so the plot stops and a Sandman appears and then they go to sleep with these 14 angels and then they're woken up by a, a Jew fairy and then they... Um, skip about a bit more, and then eventually they see, and then eventually they see the, the the gingerbread house, and the plot is reactivated. We're used to that in opera, aren't we? But I, I, I think it was it was a a, 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 a a very calculated choice that these two fairies at that point in the evening were completely benevolent, and they were a guiding good force. We we see it like it's almost good teachers who kind of are arriving saying, I can't stop what's going to happen to you when you go home tonight, but I can make sure that you have a very good day at school. Or I can't, I can't stop what's going to happen to you tomorrow, but you are going to have a good night's sleep before, before you, you wend your way to this witch's house. Um, and I think that's, that's in keeping with a lot of the sanitization of the, of the um, Grimm's uh, fairy tale. So in the fairy tale, as Daniel says, it's a... It's a wicked stepmother, not a mother. And it's a wicked stepmother who dies. She, you know, she, she gets her comeuppance at the end of the story. There's none of the, um, the business, in, which is a shame, really, for, for staging purposes, but there's none of the going out with the bread and dropping the trail of bread or, or stones. The parents are not as wicked as to dump their children in the forest. They just, she just sends them out to get berries. Um, so I think that middle section is to kind of... Um, create more positive uh, influences and forces around the children before before the witch appears. Do you want to... You've been talking about sort of um, malevolent characters and uh, women dressed as men and men and all the rest of it and paedophilia and all that. Do you want to reveal anything about the witch? Yes, we've got a... We, uh, we have two casts. Um, uh, so there's a, there's, there are two other singers singing Hans and Gretel. Um, because we're playing consecutive performances. So there are two witches, and they're both men. 
Um, and I made that decision very early. And then I slightly regretted it and thought, actually, I, I wish I'd chosen women for reasons we don't need to go into. Um, and, and, uh, 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 and then I made a decision that I wanted to explore the witch being a man. So it's being played as a man. So it's a man who happens to um, dress up as a woman to, uh, to seduce and attract these children to his house. Um, and then it, it's he... written for a mezzo level of voice, isn't it? That's a, that, you know, that range. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's quite high for a mezzo as well. well so it's, I, I was uh, wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, it, it sits really well for a tenor. I think, I mean, when you told me that you'd decided to cast a man, I, I was, I'm quite happy because I think that there's a lot of high, higher voices in this show. The only other male singer is, is the father, the baritone, who sings a little in act one and then at the very end. So I think having another male voice in there, just from an audience perspective, is quite nice to have a slightly different, mm. different range, just in terms of oral interest as well as the obvious, uh, you know, narrative reasons that you've talked about. One of the things that interests me is the, the, the text. I mean, in, in the original German, it, it, it rhymes, it's clever, it's a bit kiddy and a bit funny at times. Hocus pocus, malus, locus, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is a translation by David Pountney, originally done for Welsh National, which I think ENO put on 20 or 30 years ago. And I must say, I mean, do listen out for some of the rather witty rhymes, the witty language, including during the whole witch scene. And some of this must be quite, quite fun to, to be almost overemphasizing. You know, what do you say? Click, 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 click. Give us a few examples of what to listen out for. One of my favorites, which isn't in my text at all, it's the father's text. And he's coming in and he's really happy because he's finally made money. And, and he says, and a, a Boom town was a broom town because he's finally sold these brooms. And so he's like, yes. And I don't know why. It's just some, a lyric that I think is so funny. And of course, his broomsticks, which go with witches. Course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. Most of them are so good that you don't even notice that you're rhyming some of the time. Yeah. There is one page where it gets a bit... <laughs> we had to spend a long time trying to work out what Poutney was um, going for Type there. <laughs> what, do you, what do you say at one point? Um, oh, so there's a bit where um, Gretel's kind of talking about, oh, I've seen these angels. And Hansel just goes, exactly. And it's so <laughs> adult to say. It's so grown up. Like, so, I meant your one oh, at the end after, um, you should say, please, the wind agrees. Oh, yeah. And you say, <laughs> don't be a tease. I eat what I sees. I eat what I sees. <laughs> I mean, we understand it, but <laughs> I think he, maybe. But, the, but I agree well. with you. They're largely incredibly witty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. They're really good. Very good. I noticed just again when watching you rehearse uh, the, other, the other day, I mean, there's a lot of flying there, witches supposedly flying over the skies and so on. And I see you playing with an aeroplane. Do you fly with an aeroplane? What's the aeroplane doing? <laughs> uh, the aeroplane is our interpretation of the angels. Interesting. No, I mean, it's going to be a very richly varied visual show as well as musical and uh, vocal and all the rest of it. And I mean, all the themes I was mentioning before are obviously being richly um, Im embodied in the performance and the production. Anything else about the music or the... the, 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 the... Could I say something? Yeah, please, Mark, go ahead. And then I, we'll, I was just we'll thinking, open it up in a minute. Ben was uh, saying how it's so unusual that in two hours of opera you would dedicate 20 minutes to the orchestra alone. And of course there were practical reasons, I think, in terms of set changes going on. But I also think that this was Humperdinck's investment in the magical nature of the story, that uh, the transportational quality of the music, that when the, when the overture opens from the very opening with this, with four horns playing a chorale, not four horns in our version, we don't have four, but you'll get the same effect, that a, a German 19th century audience would probably immediately have been transported musically to a magical outdoor space. Uh, and then these moments of seven minutes of witch's ride and then also this pantomime are moments. And I, when I played, rather than finishing off the evening prayer rather normally, I did give you the moment when we transfer into this other world and that this was uh, Humperdinck 
investing time in his opera into the music's addition to making sure that we understand that we're in this space which is not literal and ordinary but mm. totally extraordinary. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Last question really about the, the, the location. It's open air, it's in the open air theatre which looks wonderful, it's a joy to sit there and watch and enjoy a show but you can't presumably have the, the large, almost Wagnerian orchestra in a... How, how, tell us about the orchestra, Ben. Sure, well, I mean, I, so today was my first day rehearsing with the orchestra, and it was, I sort of felt a bit like a kid at Christmas this morning, because I grew up coming to watch shows at ENO, and I remember seeing and thinking, I mean, it's literally, it is my biggest dream to, to do a, pro, a production at ENO, so I was sort of like, wow, this is amazing going to conduct the ENO orchestra this morning. Um, we are using a reduction by a chap called Derek Clark, who used to be head of music at Scottish Opera, um, and it's for 19 players, um, and it's we, we haven't got the space or, or the the um, resources to, to bring in the full you know 80 90 piece Eno orchestra, which would be wonderful. Um, what we do have is the 19 principal players um, who are extraordinary, and and we there is no recording of this reduction, so none of us really knew what it was going to sound like. Um, we've studied it on paper and of course it looks it looks fine but today was the first time this morning when I was going to find out if it's going to be remotely interesting or not and it is absolutely incredible the colours that uh, Derek's put in so what you will hear is is not what you're used to hearing if you've heard recordings or seen productions before it is definitely different um, so we have single strings there's eight strings instead of 40 which is a huge difference mm. um, but the colours are still in there, and uh, he, he, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll still hear all those wonderful things. Being outside, of course, we can't play everything acoustically, because then you, you wouldn't hear anything. It's a, it's a big space. Um, so those of you that came to see, see Turn of the Screw last year, um, I, I went as a punter to watch, and I thought they, it was remarkably successful, actually, what they did with, the, um, with uh, miking each singer and miking the orchestra. And Nick, who was the sound designer on that, is also our... He was the sound designer on that, wasn't he? Is our sound designer on this. And the idea is that it shouldn't sound to you like it's amplified, apart from a few moments where we will exploit the fact that we have amplification to sound otherworldly. So there might be bits where a cuckoo does not sound like it's coming from the orchestra behind the stage, but it might be coming from behind you. Who knows? We'll see how that works in uh, stage orchestras. Um, but yes, yeah, so it shouldn't sound amplified or electronic, but it just lifts the singers a little bit. So these guys will still have to project as normal. They won't be able to <laughs> relax and, and sort of sing pop style. But uh, hopefully you shouldn't notice too much other than, wow, this sounds extraordinary for an open-air opera. And you'll be placed behind the... Yes, so I will not really be able to see the singers, which is completely terrifying for me. Um, I've not really done a show like this before, and they will only be able to see me uh, on a series of monitors, uh, which are obviously in black and white and not as clear as you know, a live person. So it is hugely challenging in some ways, but also quite exciting that it's, for all of us, it's a, it's a new experience. Quite often the orchestration suddenly stops as a bit of almost speech, isn't there? And so, I mean and then suddenly starts off again. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, it's, it's mostly through composed in a, in a very Wagnerian style, but then there are these moments of sort of recitative, like when the, when the orchestra stops and there's interjection between us, and that has been fun to play around with in rehearsal, but I'm aware that, that when we get into the space and we're not as close as we are now, it's going to be uh, an interesting challenge. We hear the witch talking about who the mouse in the house or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And actually, that's what's quite nice about this unique situation is moments like when the witch is singing from inside the house and there are the echoes in the woods uh, where they ask who's there. Things like that, we can use the fact that this is a slightly amplified and that, that we have speakers and we have this technology to, to make it slightly more realistic in, in a sort of dramatic fashion as well. Exciting. Good. I'm really looking forward to going to the production, the performance, actually in the park, in the woods. Um, but um, let's open the thing up to questions. Um, anything anybody would like to ask? And there's a roving mic. So when you do, when, if you ask something, tell us who you are and speak very clearly so everybody can hear the question. My name's Sue, um, and I love the open-air theatre, so I've been to club productions and things. How would you cope with the change in weather with the instruments and things like that? Because sometimes the, it rains. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I should have said very early on as well that one of the other massive design challenges or design givens to any designer coming to do a music theatre piece is that the orchestra 
slash band have to be covered. The singers don't, uh, <laughs> or the actors, but the, but the, the musicians must be. Um, last year, for those that saw Turn of the Screw, they were in this almost hermetically sealed box that was, <laughs> that was kind of perfect, but without, it, was, it wasn't without challenges. It was very hot last summer, as you remember, and so there was lots of fans being taken in, and then it was too cold and fans coming out. And so we didn't have rain issues last year. We had um, heat issues. And um, those, particularly the ladies that were in their corsets outside at the matinees, it was so hot. And the singers were incredible at how they coped with it. Um, so every, I think we just have to, the temperature has to be of a certain, at a certain level. They're completely covered. Um, it's, it's challenging. For the singers, um, we only stop uh, play at Regent's Park for the health and safety of the performers. We don't stop for the comfort of the performers. <laughs> and we don't stop for your comfort. Um, uh, so, and that's taken very seriously because the health and safety of a soprano might be different to the health and safety of a 19-year-old actor. Um, so that, those decisions, when we stop or when it's, when it's required to stop for safety, are really dependent on who is on stage, what the action is, and what the immediate forecast is. But, but heat can be as, um, mm. uh, as uh, um, challenging as, as wet weather. Cold is kind of the worst when it's cold and we've not had, I mean, this is purposely not at the beginning of the season, so it's sli hopefully slightly warmer for the, for the singer's voices, but it's, it's definitely a concern. It's, it's the second of four shows you're putting on this summer. It's the there? second of four. We have Our mm. Town on at the moment, which was incredibly, which is a, uh, an American play by Thornton Wilder, which was incredibly cold in the first few performances, and all of the actors are on stage throughout. Um, they weren't on stage throughout. I've read on the show report lots of exits to warm up and then coming back on when they weren't being used. And then we have Midsummer Night's Dream after this, and then we have a, um, a Vita after that, yeah. Uh, thank you. It, it's clearly a, a, a treat in store, and it's a piece of extraordinary charm. I sometimes think it's a bit like uh, Wizard of Oz, which has a sort of dream sequence at the heart of it in, in glorious technicolor with a wicked witch and little people. Um, and I think Ben referred to its junior Wagner, and of course it's very appealing uh, for, for children, but darker themes as well. So I was wondering, Timothy, you were talking about aiming at an audience, trying to keep children happy and not too scared, and um, there, there is rather more depth to it than the superficial sort of cuteness of the music, how you try and balance those two things. Yeah, very good question. Um, and and uh, very early on, both organisations decided that they wanted this, this was for a family audience, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't make a piece that was alien to, to parents bringing their children. Um, I think children can cope with a lot more than we um, think they might be able to. They certainly do in the playground and on television, but suddenly when it gets to theatre, everyone's up in arms that it's not suitable for children, is my experience. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, and then I look at, and then I see children and the games that they're playing, which are always violence, always led by, by um, warring tribes. Um, so we are definitely uh, in, uh, selling this production to families, but it I hope it isn't shying away from the slightly darker um, subtext, which I don't think the fairy tales do either. I think, you know, the story is the story. So if you, if you don't want to address the darkness of it, then don't read your children Hansel and Gretel or don't invite them to the opera. It's a serial killer who's also a cannibal. I mean, that, that is the story. Um, I mean, that can be presented in a, in a variety of ways, and we present it, hopefully, comedically in places so that we can be distanced from it. But I, I, I think that all of those... If you think about a lot of those fairy tales, they're full of horrors, aren't they? But they're presented in such a way that the child is gripped. That's what you want, first of all, isn't it? That a child wants to listen and wants to watch and wants to partake in this story. And they can take on board more than we think they can. And they will go home and ask questions. And if they don't ask questions, it's working on a subliminal level. And, uh, 
you know, we, we, we can dissect what Jack and the Beanstalk is actually about, or Little Red Riding Hood, who chooses to stray. She chooses not to do what her mother said. Her, is it a mother or a grandma? A mother. A mother says, go straight to Granny's, and here's the basket. She decides not to do that. She decides to stray into the forest because she's approaching adolescence. She's, she's curious. She wants to discover things. She wants to find independence. I have my own particular, I'm not alone in, in you know, what the red cape represents that the wolf takes from her. Um, uh, and then she's eaten by this wolf at the end. But she, she, she is then born again. She's born again with that experience of having had the red cape taken from her and being eaten by a wolf. And I think that is planted in children's psyches. They, it, it, we all operate at different levels, don't we? And Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, Jack is climbing an enormous phallus, in my opinion, and he go. And what does he meet at the top? A female um, uh, 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 giant that he has a certain experience with. And when he comes back to Earth, he's a different young man. These fairy tales of uh, Hansel and Gretel, they 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 survive, don't they? They what do they learn? They learn to make independent choices, as as Heather and mm. and um, Lizzie said. They have to make these extraordinary life choices in front of this serial killer to survive. And whilst I think it is a happy ending, and I think that's the cleverness of these stories, it is seemingly happy ever after. But is it really... I mean, these children are still going home having um, nearly been victims of a serial killer and, and in turning the tables on that serial killer and, and burning her slash him in the oven. There's clearly psychological damage there. Um, but, 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 but in the fairy tale, possibly not. It just, it just lands questions and it lands thoughts that children, you know, that they can exist outside of the realm of their parents. They can make choices for themselves and survive. Um, there's a there's pathway shown, I think, in these stories, and um, it's it's the degree to which one literally shows them, I guess. Um, could I just say that last year's Turn of the Screw was fantastic, particularly from the sound point of view. Oh, great. And that was something that was very special. So this isn't a question or anything, but it gives us lots of hope for this year's production. And puts lots of pressure on us to replicate <laughs> <laughs> So, good. Best wishes to Nick, if that's his name. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I absolutely agree. Talking about the rain, I remember going to Beggar's Opera a few years ago and I saw about half of it three times because it was a very rainy summer. <laughs> Anything else anybody would like to ask? How, how many of you kind of know this opera, have seen it and so on? Quite a number of you. So I hope I didn't tell you things you knew already in any detail. Um, no, I think it's going to be a lovely show and it's the perfect setting, setting for it. Anything else you'd like to ask while we have everybody here? And we can certainly chat to people after we officially break up. But yeah, sure. Tom Maxwell. Uh, just a question for Ben. You mentioned the fact that this particular version hadn't been done before. No, so this, this version has been done before, um, but it, there's no recording it's of it. There's no recording. Yeah. Will you be doing a recording? Uh, no, but actually, having heard it with the orchestra today and having heard this cast, it's a shame that we're not, because... Uh, it's an opportunity. Yeah, well, maybe speak to someone at e &O, because I think, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's a terrific reduction, and actually, it, it's often done at the music colleges because it can be done with a, with a small orchestra, but I think it would benefit from being recorded, and yes, For tell people For historical reasons. Yeah, absolutely, but also I think it, it just works very well. I think it's, um, it, it could help the opera to be performed in, se in settings where it's not necessarily possible to do it always. I think that's yeah. important. People are going to meet this opera who perhaps ordinarily wouldn't meet Absolutely, it because yeah. of the, the requirements. It's worth saying, although the numbers are reduced, 
the parts themselves are highly virtuosic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and therefore we are, you know, delighted to have all of our principles from the Ian Orchestra. So, you know, this is not a kind of, it's not dumbed down in yeah. any way. And actually when you take away the large forces, this actually brought more focus to the wonderful virtuosity that we have in the Ian Orchestra. Well, if you think about it, it's every person, so all 19 players are playing exactly what they would play in a normal production of Hansel and Gretel, plus they're replacing the... 40 or 50 other people that are not there. So they are, I mean, the, the violinist was saying to me today, she said, I have no idea how we're going to be doing this 10 times because she doesn't stop. They literally don't stop. There's, mm. there's, no, there's no rest for, for the wicked. It's, um, but it's, it's, I mean, they'll manage because it's the ENO Orchestra. Um, but it's, uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. It should be recorded. And, but I'm sure you will, you'll really appreciate the, the reduction because it is it's fab. Mm. Is, is it reduced both the size of the orchestra and also the length of the piece? No, every bar of the original is in. So you, w you won't be missing anything. Exactly, yeah, important to say that, I think. Mm. Shall we break up but talk informally? Mm. I think it's been a lovely evening. I mean, bravo, our, our wonderful um, panel here. And uh, I'm lo really looking forward enormously to the performance and the production. Thank you so much. You're all, you've all been working absolutely flat out, and yet here you are thinking and talking and being elegant and uh, social as well. So thank you so much for all you've been doing and thank you so much all the more for what you will shortly be doing from the 14th of June till the 22nd, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. It's next week, which I remembered today, which is slightly terrifying, but very exciting. <laughs> it's imminent. So do go to the show. I'm sure I'll see you all there every night, every day. Anyway, bravo. Thank you very much and thank you. <laughs>